0: Welcome
1: back. Uh, this is part two of our conversation with Dale Hample and Jessica, Jessica Hample, where we're discussing their article, There Is No Away, Where Do People Go When They Avoid an Interpersonal Conflict? If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to part one, please do. And thank you for joining us now for part two. What guidance can you give us about constructively avoiding conflict. My assumption in that question is there's constructive ways and less constructive ways to avoid conflict. And how might your guidance differ depending on whether the conflict takes place between relational partners, family members, or between co-workers, or even with your boss or subordinates? I know that's a big question.
2: No, it's an interesting question. And what what it puts me in mind of is this very, very old idea of uh, Gerald Miller about interpersonal relationships all being on a continuum from personal to sociological and personal relationships are when you really know the other person and sociological relationships are where your role interacts with the other person's role. And, and so if you're having a sociological conflict or relationship with another person who's your boss and you're the subordinate, well, you're, you're, you're not so much individuals. You are a boss and a subordinate. And uh, there's likely to be a script for this. And in many businesses, the script says you say yes, sir. You take notes and you go do it. In other businesses, the script might be that that you can disagree freely, but there's going to be a script. And the, the, the more sociological, the more role defined uh, the, the relationship is, the more likely there is going to be something, uh, uh, if, if not explicitly written down in an employee manual, then at least commonly understood for how you talk to a boss, how you talk to a coworker, how you talk to a customer, and so forth. Um, and then then uh, at the other end of the continuum are, are your intimates, uh, your relational partner, your sibling, something like that. And uh, there you don't so much react to a person as a sibling, you react to your person as, as Susan. And uh, I, I would say follow your best instincts. I mean, everybody knows how to be nice and everybody knows how to be mean and uh, just be nice, and that'll carry you a very long way through life. Uh, This is not profound advice, but I I do want to remind you that our study was descriptive. We we weren't working toward normative advice in in this particular project.
1: Jessica, did you want to add to that?
0: Yeah, I think that's basically as much as we can say at this point, because, yeah, what we know is what people did, but we don't actually know how that worked for them in the future. So we know that they saw the conflict coming. We know a little bit about how they perceived the conflict. We know a little bit about what they did, where they went physically or mentally, but we don't have any information about, you know, two weeks later when the conflict came back. If it did come back, if it didn't just evaporate, what did that look like? Was it, you know, better than you thought it would have been? Was it worse? Did the avoidance help you, hurt you, do nothing but kick the can down the road? So it's really quite difficult for us to give advice about what you should do other than just kind of general advice to, you know, uh, as he said, Pay attention to if you don't know the person, if you're really just working off of uh, the rules of the roles the two of you hold in relationship to each other, then follow the script and kind of do the expected thing, Um, whatever it is that the other person would expect you to do in response. Um, Whereas if it is someone you know, like with my sister, I have a whole different way of dealing with conflict than if it's you know a coworker or a parent or anyone else
1: is is there um a constructive way to avoid conflict and one that's less constructive
0: am i imagining that that exists (laughs) personally i think it probably does but i think it might have as much to do with what the conflict is as anything else so for instance the conflicts that we saw where people were saying well i thought there might be physical violence coming i personally would argue that any successful attempt at avoidance that caught you out of that situation was a constructive way of doing it and i don't personally care much what it happened what it did late down the road because you avoided violence in the moment whereas other things you know i think it yeah, I think it's going to have a lot to do with which conflicts you can constructively avoid and which conflicts you kind of really do need to engage in at the moment.
2: You know, your, your question got me to think about something that didn't really come up in the study, but it seems to me that you could avoid explosively or quietly. And uh, I, I think that that would probably make a difference of some sort in a particular interaction.
1: So there's an uh, an avoidance to avoidance. There's avoidance to avoidance. (laughs) You can avoid your avoidance. So how does your research findings tell us more about, well, how to avoid physical violence, threat, or harm? Did did any of your, you did a descriptive study. Did anything emerge from there that might tell us about effective ways to avoid uh, physical
0: violence, threat, or harm? Um, Not really. So we don't really have the data to give that answer because, again, as we said, we kind of know what happened in the moment, but we don't know if the fight started again the next day or the next week or anything like that. Um, Having said that, we can tell you a little bit about what people did, and I think it's worth remembering that what we saw when we asked about violence was a lot of people who said I saw it coming and then said it didn't actually happen, Um, which I suspect might be, in my mind, I think that if you're in the middle of a conflict and there's emotional violence, you can walk away from the conflict and feel like you avoided it. If there's verbal violence, you can walk away from the conflict and feel like you avoided it. If someone punches you, you can walk away from the conflict, but you're probably not going to feel like that conflict was avoided. You're probably going to feel like it did happen. And if you look at the way we asked the question, we asked people to remember and talk about a conflict that they avoided. So we probably lost some data there in terms of people who maybe attempted to walk away from a conflict that became violent, whether that worked or not. But that does mean that what we're left with, is the people who thought they saw violence coming and typically speaking were successfully able to avoid avoid it happening, avoid the conflict that they expected to lead to it. And so what I would say in terms of guidance, I don't know how strongly I would make these recommendations. I'm not sure I even want to call them recommendations because, as I said, we don't know for sure what happened in the future, but you can, if you're in that situation, think about some of the stuff that we saw other people doing in the studies. So physically leaving. So if you're capable of it, like physically removing yourself from the situation or terminating communication. So, um, depending on you know your age level you might have it or depending on how old you are that might be a question of you know blocking someone on all of the social media outlets you have stuff like that uh also especially looking at the stuff that i think or at least in my mind the really interesting stuff there would be the things that people successfully use during the conflict Uh, Because that's really, if you can see the conflict coming, then you can be not in the room and you can kind of make decisions about how to go forward with, you know, a little bit more time and, you know, a little bit less stress while you're making the decision. But when you're in the conflict itself, what we were seeing were, again, things like changing the topic, uh, distracting the person in some way, using fake agreements if necessary. Really, the answer, though, is again going to come down to what do you know about the other person? Because it's going to be whatever is safe. Um, My personal personal suspicion is that if you are in a conflict and you are worried about the other person becoming violent— Um, You might also be worried about, you know, getting caught avoiding whatever this conflict is that they think is such a big deal. So I think one of the few examples of violence we did have was, uh, for instance, a conflict with a parent at a baseball game, I think it was, who threw a baseball bat at the umpire. Um, And I'm thinking about a conflict like that. If I were the one you know, if I were the umpire in that case, it would be I would be thinking about trying to avoid it, trying to make the conflict go away in some fashion. But I can also imagine that whatever it is, this parent was presumably yelling and screaming about that had them worked up so badly. If they saw you just kind of trying to change the topic, they might have felt like you were being dismissive of whatever they thought was the most important thing in the world at that particular moment. So I think a lot of it's going to come down to com- coming in to a conflict that you think might become violent because we did the uh, respondents did see a lot of this stuff coming. So walking into a conflict that you think has the potential to become that heated with a person who you think has the potential to become violent and having this kind of pre-planned list of things that could work And trying to choose one that the other person isn't going to pick up on and get angry at you for trying to do. I think the other big lesson, though, is this uh, finding we had that people, or not so much that, but this way of thinking about avoidance, where we're talking about not just the push, so that would be the threat of violence, obviously, but also thinking about the pull. So when we think about things like how to uh, avoid conflicts that could become violent, we think a lot about what does that conflict look like? How do you get out? But we don't think very hard about what do you do afterwards? So I think that is worth some thought if you can see it coming and you're doing some planning. Think about if you're physically trying to avoid, where is a place you can go that has historically been safe for you? So the kind of famous, obvious example is if your conflicts in your relationship relatively get or regularly get violent, you go to your parents house. So having a physical place you can escape to, but also because a lot of the conflicts did happen um, and a lot of especially what we know in the world, it's not always safe. If there's physical violence, it's not always safe to physically leave. It could also be useful to have some pre-planning in terms of what are some conversations that have historically been safe? What are some topics that have historically been safe? What are some things that can be done during the conflict itself? Some uh, ways to try to refocus or reroute the conversation that have historically been safe. Just something to get you through to the other side until you can kind of calm down. And with that less stressful, less imminent threat of violence, think about what's going to happen in the future and what decisions you think are best for keeping you safe in the future. Nice. What are the next steps
1: in terms of research and theory for the study of avoidance and in interpersonal conflict. And what about the next steps for research to inform practice?
2: Well, I, I think uh, uh, one, one of the things that, that we just sort of briefly mentioned in the paper, and I'm, I'm intrigued by it, is uh, 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 reframing conflict behaviors as coping behaviors. Uh, if, if there's a, a conflict, uh, we're talking about you being in a situation of stress and uncertainty. Uh, and uh, uh, stress and uncertainty are the things that call out coping mechanisms. And uh, coping has been studied in psychology for more than a century. It started with Sigmund Freud. Uh, and, and defense mechanisms really became codified in a useful way by his daughter, Anna Freud. Uh, but there's a, a tremendous amount of, of work about uh, uh, coping with stress in a mature way, or an immature way, a realistic way, an unrealistic way, doing it uh, constructively, doing it with humor, doing it with passive aggression, and and uh, a lot of, of avoidance is is a way of coping. Uh, one one of you know thirty, I think, on the usual lists. Uh, and it, it, it's just sort of interesting to me to think about conflict not as its own thing, but as an example of stress that, and and then conflict tactics become coping tactics. And and I, I think that it might be fun just to think about that for a while. Uh, and and that that has a more theoretical benefit than a practical one. But you know that's what professors are for.
0: Yeah. Beyond that, I think uh, other stuff we could do is we've been talking a lot about how to focus more on that pull, that thing that you're doing. So figuring out what makes this other thing attractive. So how do you, we've mentioned a couple of times that conflict avoidance could be literally anything in the world, but you don't do everything in the world. You choose something. So what is it that you're choosing? What is it that makes that thing attractive on its own? What is it that makes it attractive in comparison to the conflict that you're avoiding? Which, you know, successful, if you go from our findings that people felt like they could have successfully engaged in this conflict, that would have some benefits to them. So there's certainly a push, there's a stress with the conflict, but there's also the possibility of some gain. And people are not taking that possibility. So what is it about this other thing that is attractive, as I said, not just on its own, but in comparison to what you are losing out on by not engaging in the conflict? And, of course, another thing that we would uh, be interested in knowing is, what are the future outcomes of all this stuff? Because that's the reason we can't really give very much advice, right? Is that we know what they did, but we don't know how that worked out for them, for their partner, for their relationship, uh, for the conflicts that happened within relationships that were ongoing and not just, you know, a random guy at the baseball game. But uh, we don't know what outcomes those had. So that would also be an interesting way of going forward and seeing if, there are certain of rating strategies that, as you say, are constructive versus destructive and whether or not we can predict which is which.
1: Any final thoughts um, or takeaways that might help our listeners to have more satisfaction and constructive outcomes for their experience with interpersonal conflict?
2: I, I think the biggest takeaway is, is the one that we started with before we even gathered data. Uh, Avoidance is not the absence of conflict activity, avoidance is its own behavior, and it needs to be understood as something that people do, not something that they failed to do, like being integrative or distributive.
1: Jessica, any any
0: thoughts to add? That's pretty much where I am, too, is thinking about avoidance as a choice people are making rather than a choice that they are not making.
1: Well, I want to thank you both very much. Our time is up for our podcast. It was very interesting, very informative. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your award-winning article.
2: It was fun, and you had some really good questions. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having us. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you to our guest today for an engaging conversation. For more information about this episode, we hope you'll check out the podcast notes at the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictteam.com. That's one word, negotiationandconflictteam.com. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in this episode. Special thanks goes out to Dr. Chi Wang, editor in chief of the Journal of Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, for her support and assistance with this podcast. On behalf of our podcast team, Ming Hong Tsai, Laura Reese, Jennifer Perlamis, Michael Gross, that's me, and Deborah Sai, thank you for listening. Please tell a friend about our podcast and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion that brings us from article to audio.